to the Limitless Leadership Podcast. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome or welcome back to the Limitless Leadership Podcast. So pleased that you're able to join us today. Uh, it is going to be a fascinating conversation uh, with an incredible guest. Andrew Bunt is with us today uh, to talk about a controversial and an incendiary uh, topic in today's society. We're going to be talking about sexuality. But just before I introduce Andrew to you and we get to that, I've got to tell you about Limitless Leaders. Three days of like-minded community practical equipping and spirit-filled ministry for youth and children's ministry leaders that's on the 18th to the 20th of january at a brand new venue for limitless leaders as well the hayes conference center and uh whatever church whatever domination uh whatever background you are from you are so so welcome to join us for limitless leaders so to find out more and have a look at the the, the program and to get your tickets you can go to limitlesselim.co.uk forward slash leaders and we'll link to that uh, for you in the show notes as well well andrew welcome uh, to the limitless leadership podcast so so delighted to have you with us today thank you it's really great to be here uh now andrew as we uh, kind of uh, uh, alluded to a, a few moments ago uh, we're going to be talking about uh, sexuality today. And, and in a few moments' time, I'll ask you to unpack your own personal story. But before we do that, um, just tell us a, a little bit about yourself, uh, what you do day by day. And also, just love to hear a little bit more about Living Out, who I know uh, part of your time is is given to to working with Living Out. So so, so tell us about yourself and, and about Living Out. Sure, yeah. So I'm based down on the southeast coast, a seaside town called Bexhill. I serve as an assistant pastor at a church that has congregations here and just along the coast in Hastings. Uh, so people say that people move to the seaside towns of Hastings and Eastbourne to retire, and they move to Bexhill, which is between to die. So we're kind of quite <laughs> retired. We're kind of an, an elderly population, also young families and stuff. So it's a nice kind of quiet, sleepy place to live, which I quite like. Uh, and yeah, so alongside being an assistant pastor at the church here, I'm also part of the team at Living Out, which is a UK charity where we seek to help people, churches, and society talk about faith and sexuality. And really, we're helping people to understand orthodox biblical teaching about sexuality and how actually that's good news for all of us, including those of us like myself who are same-sex attracted, and how we can all thrive and flourish via understanding and living out biblical teaching. Uh, really helpful, Andrew. And actually, uh, you've alluded to something there, which is probably worth us saying up front. That we're just going to lay our cards out on the table, so everybody listening, you know, uh, can uh, well perhaps not know what to expect. Actually, because I imagine there'll be some things that they don't uh, expect, but at least to know the perspective that we're coming from, which which is one of of biblical orthodoxy, by which we mean that you know, in the beginning, God created us male and female, and that for this reason, a husband will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Biblical orthodoxy being that we believe that sex and marriage uh, is for one man, one woman, uh, which um, though. Uh, uh, though rings true with you know centuries of biblical orthodoxy and though would have been commonly accepted even in society for almost as long is one of the most controversial things you could possibly say uh in the 21st century western world isn't it andrew and yet he yeah. he you come uh, with living out um striding into that culture and offering a, an alternative voice and a, an alternative perspective to that which the culture says, but um, Andrew, I know that 
for you, and again, you alluded to this as as you introduced yourself there, this isn't just theory or theology. This is something that's really uh, personal to you. So I'd love it, Andrew, if you could just, before we get into maybe some of the questions and engage with scripture and culture, I'd love to hear just some of your own personal story and how you arrived at, at this point uh, now. So I was really blessed to grow up in a, a Christian context, a Christian uh, home. I was part of the church that I'm now an assistant pastor at. And I became a Christian at quite a young age, had a big kind of family Bible camp and loved Jesus, wanted to follow him and kind of looked down you know, the timeline of my life, what I thought life would be like. And I thought the really obvious thing was that I was going to grow up, leave home, get married, get a decent job and have some kids. That just seemed to be what was the right good Christian thing to do. It's what everyone around me seemed to do is what seemed to kind of be implied from the pulpit is the right thing to do. I just thought, obviously, that's what's going to happen. Right. And then I reached my early teen years, and I began to realise that actually, whereas my friends around me were attracted to people of the opposite sex, I was attracted to people of the same sex. My romantic and sexual desires were for guys rather than for girls. But I also knew that I've been taught that the Bible teaches that marriage and sex are reserved for relationships of one man and one woman. And so suddenly it was in this situation of, wait, what does it mean to be someone who wants to faithfully follow Jesus, but who also is attracted to people of the same sex? And for a few years, I didn't really do much about it. To be honest, I think I was such a sheltered Christian kid and the world, this is almost 20 years ago now, was such a different place. That I just mm. didn't know some people are same sex attracted or gay. So I kind of had no box to put it in. But then as I grew up a few years, began to understand more, had to really wrestle with, okay, what do I actually believe? And so I went through a time really wrestling of what does the Bible say? What does this mean for my life? And then as I'm wrestling with the case, what the Bible says, can I actually do that? Is that going to work for me? And I've come to a position of believing, no, no, the Bible definitely does say what Christians for 2,000 years have believed it said, that marriage mm -hmm. and sex are for one man, one woman uh, relationships. But also to believe that is good news, even for me as a gay guy. And I can thrive and flourish within biblical teaching. And in fact, it's only within biblical teaching that I can truly thrive and flourish. Wow. Um, and like when you kind of say it there, you I guess kind of rattle off a quick fire version of your testimony Andrew uh it all kind of fits together nicely but I guess that journey of well like Jesus said denying yourself in order to follow him must at times have been quite a painful one definitely yeah and a difficult a lot to wrestle a lot of questions to ask it's important I think that I had the space to ask those questions and to wrestle with and I think for teenagers it's really difficult actually because you are wrestling with stuff which potentially is going to impact the rest of your life. Yeah, mm -hmm. So for me, it was changing the expectation of what I thought the rest of my life would be. And <clears throat> decisions on you know, deciding what I thought the Bible said, what I was going to do about that, were decisions which probably were going to impact and shape the rest of my life. So yeah, really, really big things. And I think it therefore took time. And I'm grateful that I had time and space and freedom to wrestling, to explore and to kind of ask questions and stuff. And certainly it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't a linear thing. I think for me personally, I think on what the Bible said, it was quite linear in the sense of I never really doubted what the Bible said, because I think it is very clear. I think mm -hmm. arguments against it aren't very convincing. It's just kind of intellectually in a sense. I felt it was such a strong case uh, in support of what I already knew or had been taught. But to be honest, the reality then of what does that look like on the ground living it out was a much more 
difficult battle that was was not linear it was up and down in a sense I should really yeah, wrestling and going through a journey my late teens my early 20s particularly of wrestling with does this work uh, and work out how could it work and so for me that was the the bigger difficulty actually than what God says so uh- I do wonder, Andrew, because so you, you said there, you know, you, you engage with the scripture and you, you come to the conclusion that the scripture is explicit and consistent throughout about what it has to say about sexuality. Um, and so I guess then you're faced with a choice, which is either to, you know, submit to um, Jesus lordship over your life. And as we said, kind of deny yourself of those natural desires in order to follow Jesus or to say, well, I just can't do that. Um, I, uh, I am gay. I'm same-sex attracted. And if, if I can't do that and follow Jesus, well, I'm going to choose that. So I guess, was there ever, like, my question is, was there ever a point in your wrestling where you kind of seriously considered, I guess, exiting the journey of faith because that felt like one sacrifice too much? There was, in my early 20s, there was, and I look back now, so there was a point where I thought of it as you put X in the face, just because life felt too painful. And as I look back now, actually, I realise it wasn't primarily about my sexuality. At the time, I kind of thought it was, but actually, I don't know about now, I think, no, there's a load of other hurt and stuff I was wrestling with was going on. But what was interesting, I think this also links to how actually, well, it does link to how I got through it. I found myself feeling very drawn to two very different possibilities. And people always think it sounds crazy, but it's totally true. On one hand, I was thinking basically of, in reality, leaving the faith and pursuing a relationship with a guy, kind yeah. of going to a local gay youth club and stuff, seeking to meet someone. Because I thought, actually, thought, no, having a boyfriend would meet this longing I have. Mm. The other way I was seriously considering was becoming a monk. Because I knew that living in community, <laughs> as monks do, living day by day, sharing life with other people, I said, actually, that would meet this longing too. And what that helped me realise was my longing actually wasn't for sex, my longing wasn't actually for a kind of romantic relationship or marriage. My longing was just to be loved. And that's wow. the fundamental human longing we all have. Yeah. yeah. And actually, the way through for me was realizing actually a boyfriend or being a monk aren't the only two ways I can experience love and community. Actually, close friendship, church as family, living as who we are, which is the family God has brought us in, mm. becomes the way that I, as a guy who's single, who doesn't have sex, who doesn't have a partner, can experience love. And so... And I think that's so key because in our culture, love and sex become so enmeshed. Yeah. We don't yeah. believe we can really experience the love, which we are created by God to need without having a relationship or having sex. And actually mm. it was finding that middle way, which for me became the absolute turning point of realizing, no, this is plausible. It might always feel easy. And there's going to be times when it doesn't work. Just this marriage doesn't always feel easy and doesn't always um, uh, kind of meet all the needs we think it will all the time. Actually, though, there is hope. There is a way forward. And there's something I could do. I could invest in those relationships to have the legitimate yeah. needs God had given me met. Yeah, that's so good because we've, you know, in Western culture, we've so idolized sex and romance, romantic relationships, yeah. that we almost, uh, even if we wouldn't say this out loud, somewhere deep down inside, we think it's just impossible to live a full and rich life without uh, mm. one or both of those things. And yet, we follow Jesus who was single and celibate all his life and was the most content, fulfilled and joyful person who's ever walked the earth. Yeah. And so it, it can't be true that we need romance, <clears throat> gay or straight, that yeah. we need sex in order, in order to be fulfilled. 
Um, but, you know, just admire your courage, Andrew, because, you know, we'd all say, yes, well, Jesus says, you know, whoever wants to, you know, be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. And we'd all say, yeah, we're, we're willing to do that. And we're doing that in different ways. Um, but it's a, a cost that you've had to count in quite a tangible way and I'm sure have to count it every day. So just, yeah, really admire your story and your courage and, and your testimony as you follow Jesus. Um, can I, can I ask then, um, because we want to talk, um, in our conversation, Andrew, a, about the pastoral implications of an orthodox theological perspective. Um, but if for a moment we could just, you know, stay with the theology before we move on to the pastoral side of it, I wonder how do we respond to uh, the criticisms of orthodox biblical theology around sexuality um, that would say, you know, that's old fashioned, it's outdated, it's, it's irrelevant. And actually, it's not just that, is it? It's actually that would set that the criticisms would say it's actually harmful. It's mm. oppressive. Um, you're going to push people towards mental health issues in its extreme. You're going to p- p- push people towards uh, feeling suicidal because you are restricting people from being able to be who they truly are. Um, well, ha- what would your response be uh, to some of those criticisms and how, for those of us as youth leaders listening, we'll be engaging in, in those conversations with, with our friends and with our young people? You know, what, how, how do you embrace that? Yeah. I think a really practical thing first in kind of conversation with, with friends and young people is to make sure that becomes a dialogue. So when someone raises the issue of, oh, but that's so old-fashioned or that's so harmful, that's so unfair, actually rather than responding immediately with a kind of pat answer of why it's not, actually asking, oh, oh why do you think that? In what way is it harmful? Yeah. Where have you seen that? For, for two reasons. One is because often these things aren't being raised as abstract issues. Often yeah. they're rooted yes. in person experience or someone they know That's and actually good. what we don't want to do is give a pat, a pat answer which actually can come across as quite insensitive to the situation they're thinking of mm-hmm. and it may be actually that they reveal they've been really hurt or friends been really hurt and actually suddenly we've got a wonderful opening to express the love and the compassion of god so that's a, a wonderful thing but also i think it's good to engage in dialogue because actually people often assume these things but don't really know why in what way they think it's harmful and actually having a dialogue rather than giving a kind of a an answer to someone in a sense helps them explore the the answers themselves so so to say it's harmful for example to uh teach and adhere to biblical teaching you say well but in what way is it harmful so we might say well because it denies the chance denies lots of people the chance to have a or this might say it denies gay people the chance to have um a loving relationship <clears throat> and then you begin to explore well is that really true is uh, having a husband for me the only way I can experience a loving relationship is it true that sex and marriage and romantic relationships are the only place we can experience love and they're likely to say no and we begin to get to it's kind of unpick yeah. unpick yeah, that's, that's the best good. way I think unpicking the criticisms is the best way rather than having kind of your your set kind of answer to it um things like is it, it's outdated what do you mean by that which is what people used to think thousands of years ago it's not at all. The Christian sexual ethic was radically different to what the world around it thought. The world around the kind of Greek and Roman culture was much closer yeah, to where right. we are. Yeah, and actually, right. a sense, was even more yeah. sexually liberal. We would be quite disturbed by some of the stuff going on there. So in a sense, 
it has roots in in ancient texts and you know as all many ideas do but actually so do our ideas today one of the reasons that sex around kind of christian people and greco-roman culture was as it was was because of a real split between the body and the internal self that's right that's yeah. exactly where we are today today actually yeah. cultural philosophy is very similar to it was in the greco-roman world so it's actually not hard with these things to gently unpick uh why someone thinks what they think and to gently push back on that the one the harmful actually actually the Christian sexual ethic has done lots of good. The Christian sexual ethic, when it arrived in the Greco-Roman world, actually was really good news for slaves who had no personal autonomy, couldn't control, basically, who'd want to sleep with them, and for women who, likewise, had pretty much no sexual autonomy. It was really good news. It actually said these people are people made by God, loved by God, who should have control of their own choices about sex. They shouldn't basically be able to be used as sexual objects. Mm. And so in lots of different ways, these objections just don't work when we kind of gradually uh, unpick them. I yeah. point you. I might keep doing this. I point you to an article on the Living Up website, which is called "Is Something Along the Lines of Is the Christian Sexual Ethic Harmful uh, and Oppressive?" Which kind of unpicks some of these particular objections. Great, yeah, and and uh, we'll find that and we'll put a link to it in the show notes as well, right. so people can go there for for further reading. Um, uh, I haven't prepared you for, for this question, Andrew, so forgive me for it, but. As you speak there, it comes to me and feels important, um, both in terms of how we engage in these conversations, um, but also, I guess, in terms of your own personal story as well. Um, uh, and that is obviously, uh, in increasingly, we are seeing um, uh, Christians and churches and even whole denominations, uh, I would say, acquiescing to the culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, when it comes to sexuality um, and uh, embracing and endorsing same-sex marriages and so on. Um, and so, so my question really is, um, theologically, when people are coming from a, I guess, more liberal or uh, quote-unquote progressive um, perspective, um, what are some of the arguments that are being made biblically and theologically to say um actually as christians we should be able to embrace and uh, and endorse and bless same-sex relationships and why do those arguments not hold true for you because you know this is something i've wrestled with a lot in in the scripture and i know you will have done so even more uh, than I would have, but I think just it would be a really helpful conversation for our leaders yeah. to listen in on. What are some of the arguments that are being made and why for you personally do they not stand up to much scrutiny? Mm. There are probably three different types of argument, I think. One is some people just go, the Bible very clearly speaks only negatively of same-sex relationships and same-sex sexual activity. It very clearly condemns it, but they say the Bible is out of date and shouldn't be listened to on that. And they're the people I almost have a bit more respect for because in a sense, they are honestly reading the Bible. They're just saying, we can't cope with the idea it says that, so we're going to ignore it. Mm. And also my problem with that is, no, I think the Bible is God's word to us in all generations. And that's and a huge can Exactly, yeah. yeah. So, so that's, that's one. In the middle, you have a group of people who engage in what we call revisionist arguments, in the sense that okay. they revise the traditional understanding. And so... <clears throat> they would look at the specific texts uh, about same-sex sexual activity in the Bible, and there'd be different arguments for each of those texts, if it's only six or something. But the general gist tends to be 
that these texts aren't talking about the type of um, relationships we're talking about today. So they tend to say these texts are talking either about kind of cult prostitution in ancient um, rituals of worshipping other cultures, or they're talking about uh, unequally uh, balanced relationships, so basically abusive relationships, yeah. uh, not loving, not consensual, all that kind of stuff. And they say in the ancient world, there was no concept of sexual orientation as we have it, and no concept of equally balanced, loving, uh, committed, um, consensual same-sex relationships. Therefore, the Bible wasn't able to engage with our reality. That one, and again, because there's diversity in the arguments, harder to give a, a quick answer to, but various things you can say there. One is when you look at the details of the text, I just don't think it's true. What's striking in the details of the text that talk about same-sex sexual activity is that they don't use, and they often seem to deliberately avoid words used for kind of cultic activity, used for these particular types of relationships in the ancient world. They mm -hmm. use very generic words. They very often deliberately link to creation. They use, you know, Paul yeah. in Romans 1, he uses words, not the most common words for man and woman, to which directly link us back to Genesis uh, 2. And actually his whole context is talking about creation. And so I think time and time again, the Bible roots its condemnation of same-sex sexual activity in creation, not in the specific cultures they're in. And so that's yeah. really important. That suggests we're still living in the creation. It's just as part of God's good plan, a wider thing. And that also links to the other reason I think these arguments aren't convincing is they don't fit with the bigger positive picture the Bible teaches about marriage and sexuality. But we have these kind of like six texts about same-sex sexual activity. You kind of don't need them. The rest of the Bible's theology of what sex is about, what marriage is about, means that actually marriage is always one man and one woman for life. And actually those six texts are really only an implication from that. But actually, these people who give revisionist arguments to these six texts don't then have a way of having a biblical theology of sex and marriage that fits with Genesis 2 or Ephesians 5 and Christ and the church representing marriage. So kind of if you test the, the detail against the bigger picture in these things, it just doesn't work. And also, it's just not true that there weren't consensual relationships in the, old, the um, ancient world, that there weren't some form of quasi-gay marriage as kind of uh, akin to what we know uh, mm. as gay marriage today. The famous one is the Emperor Nero, dressed up as a woman, got married to a guy. Um, there was clearly some concept of gay marriage in the ancient world. So those arguments, although in a sense I respect those people's attempts to wrestle with scripture, I think in reality the arguments really fail. And then the um, kind of third group, third way of doing it would be really look at the Bible in less detail, but making more general arguments of, well, love is love, God is love, how can God reject love? It would be the arguments like, how can we deny who people really are? How can we ask people to deny who they really are? How can we exclude people from uh, marriage and sex? And they're not really theological arguments at all. They're kind of emotive arguments there. Yeah, yeah, okay. They're rational arguments, but actually often fairly poor logic but you do get those among Christians and often you get a blurring actually of those second and third groups together. And, and actually that, that brings us on to like a really critical point in, in the conversation around sexuality, which is the way in which sexuality and identity have mm. become so intimately entwined yeah. such that if you adhere to a biblical orthodoxy and, and say, actually, you know, we believe that sex and marriage is is for one man and one woman. Um, that you are you are not. Um, uh, it's not that you're not endorsing somebody's 
behavior. It's that you are not accepting them as a person mm. because their sexuality and identity <clears throat> have become uh, so entwined in, in that way. Could you speak a little bit about that kind of enmeshment of identity and sexuality and where that's come from and, and give us your perspective on that, Andrew? Yeah, it's really, I think it really is the key. I think it's the key thing for us in our cultural moment, I think, especially young people. And I think just a key reason, if not the key reason, why young people who we might be working with and serving uh, just kind of can't, they can understand, but can't see how the Bible's teaching could possibly be right, is because of this, as you say, kind of blurring the line between identity and sexuality. So we live in a culture where what we feel inside is deemed to be who we are. That's the most important yeah. thing about us. What yeah. we might call internal identity, or sometimes I call it I decide identity. No one yeah. can tell me who I yeah. am. Nothing yeah. outside of me, my body, my community, a religious tradition, nothing can tell me yeah. who I am. Only I can know who I am. And I find that by looking inside of myself. Yeah, it's my what Andrew Root, and my desires. Yeah. So Andrew Root describes it as the age of authenticity. And he talks yeah. about that, like in, in, in the age of authenticity, which is that, like, it's exactly what you've just described there. Like the way that we can be. In fact, the only way that we can be truly fulfilled and happy is by identifying our most authentic desires and then living authentically according to them. Hence the yeah. age of authenticity. And it's exactly what you've described uh, there. Yeah. And which is the narrative of countless films, song lyrics now, TV. I mean, Disney yeah. is the worst. Disney is the great philosopher of our day. And so many <laughs> of the Disney narratives, um, you know, I mean, yeah, so many of the Disney narratives that I mean, one example, there are many examples I could pick. One example I'll pick is a Little Mermaid, and an old one now, although I think they're making a live action, where the, the the body, you know, the physicality of Ariel, the Little Mermaid, very clearly shows she's a mermaid, therefore she's going to find her best life by living in the sea, in that kind of mermaid culture and all sorts. But the whole film is about her rejecting her, her embodied mermaidness for her internal desire to marry Prince Eric. And so she rejects her body, she rejects her community, she rejects her family. She leaves poor Flounder, her best friend, she abandons him in the sea while she follows her internal desire, becomes a human so she can marry Eric. And so yeah. all our little kids are being told, <laughs> follow your heart, guys, stuff your family, stuff your best friend, stuff yeah. your body, follow your heart. Yeah. And time and time again, at Disney, I mean, I, I like Disney, so there's lots of them, they're quite good at it, but there's plenty around in culture. And so... This isn't an abstract idea. This is that every single one of us is being drip-fed day after day uh -huh, after day. Uh -huh. And then we get drip-fed in sexuality. So um, a celebrity comes out as gay and they talk about the fact they're finally free to be who they are. Yeah. And again, it doesn't matter the cost. So when Philip Schofield, the TV presenter, came out as gay, and it was a really interesting thing to watch because he, he's a married man with kids. So he was very clearly concerned about the, the impact this was going to have on his wife and his children. Very, very moved by that, actually. It was quite touching to see the level of care he had about that, the pain he might be causing them by making this choice to speak at this publicly, presumably to lead the relationship, to pursue a relationship with a guy. But his fellow presenter, Holly Willoughby, in that interview says, but you can't deny who you are, or something like that, or you're just being who you are. Yeah. She was, re it was reassuring him, don't worry about the pain you're causing other people. Don't worry about the mess this causes. Don't worry about the harm you're doing. What matters is what you feel is that's who you really are. Yeah. So that's so much strongly is coming. And we've got to remember that's the waters our young people are swimming in even more than we are uh -huh. during this time and time again. Yeah. So the question becomes is, is that the best way to find who we are? Because we so often ask the question, who am I? Without first asking the question, how do I find who I am? And in our culture, a big answer is I find who I am by looking inside myself and my desires and my feelings. 
the question becomes, is that a good basis for identity? And I really don't think it is for various reasons. One is, I think it puts, it puts huge pressure on us. It's a very kind of pressured, stressful way of making identity because we are the ones who have to decide who we are. No one can tell us, only we can tell everyone else. We've got to determine who we are. And that's a big deal because knowing who you are is knowing how to find and enjoy your best life. But that's really difficult and pressured because we know that our desires can change. They're not a stable basis. Also, we know our desires can conflict. What if I really want this thing and I really want this thing over here, but I can't have them both together? Mm. Which one is the real me? Which one do I embrace and follow? And actually, I think the real kind of um, clincher here is we all agree there are some desires we might feel inside, even sexual desires we might feel inside, that we would not say are good, that we would not say our identity, we would not say should be acted upon to find our best life. And actually, everybody, no matter how kind of liberal or progressive in leaning, would at some point draw a line where they would say, just because you feel it doesn't make it right. The question, I guess, then becomes, where do we draw that line? Or actually, more importantly, how do we draw that line? If at some point there is an objective, external uh, uh, truth or standard that should trump what is within us, how do we determine that line and i guess for us as followers of jesus we would say it's the scripture that's the external the external standard that sets that absolutely but in reality if you put a line anywhere you are undermining the idea that only you can decide who you are you're undermining yes. the idea that you're saying actually something, you put the line yeah, yeah something yeah. else you're allowing you're having a high authority in place so actually what this means is n- almost no one believes that what you feel inside is who you really are that's right Worry, worryingly in our culture we are getting to the point where some people are moving the line so that pretty much anything sexually can be identity and that's the problem. These things always move because it's the logical yeah. next kind of step. But you get other cases in our society, and if we have another conversation about gender, we'll know at this, other cases where, for example, someone is able-bodied but internally feels themselves to be disabled and wants their body to be changed, to be brought into line with their internal sense of self, almost everybody says, no, that's not right, that's not helpful. So even those who are moving the line of sexuality and would say sexuality is always who you are, would probably agree what you feel inside is not always who you are. And so all this, to bring this back to how do we pass young people or help young people, part of it is being aware of the cultural waters they're swimming in, and that's happening. Yeah. Being aware of the reason what the Bible says sounds so abhorrent is because it sounds set that we're denying or asking people to deny who they really are. That means the task for us is to help to um, kind of pull apart, to gradually un untwine the things that have become twinned together of sexuality and identity to help young people realize actually our identity is separate from our sexuality our sexuality Mm. is part of our experience of life it's not who we are my same-sex attraction is part of how i am it is not who i am and it's just a desire and with all our desires we all know that all our desires we kind of have to uh, recognize them, acknowledge them, decide what we're going to do with them. We all know some desires are good or will be good for us to follow them, some won't. We need to help young people realize we class, we approach sexuality in the box of desire, not in the box of identity. And really importantly, yeah. we need to talk about identity. And so one of the great ways we can help young people without needing to talk especially about sexuality is to talk about identity. And I would say mm. to youth leaders, one of the most important things for you to be talking about explicitly and implicitly time and time again is identity. The fact that identity isn't based on what we find inside. It's yeah. also not based on what other people say about us. Lots of us have identities based on what we assume other people think about us, whether we're a good person or a successful person or a good looking person, or whatever. 
our identity is based on what God says about us, yeah. which is that we're creating the image of God as a human with inherent worth and dignity. And actually the best identity is when we respond to Jesus, we were adopted as God's children and we receive an identity that says we're accepted, we're loved, we're delighted over at every single moment. We're fully known and yet fully loved. And that's the basis from which we can assess what we feel and what we desire and follow God's word to live out the best way for us. It's so, so helpful. And I love that that thought that, you know, the primary engage with this biblically in terms of our teaching with young people is to um, speak to identity and put our sexuality. I love that. Put our sexuality in the box of desire, not in the box of mm. identity and actually to learn to separate those two things. That's so helpful, Andrew. Um, and that speak, begins to speak kind of broadly to how we help, you know, pastor and disciple young people around this stuff. But um, what about the individual what about the young person who's same-sex attracted, who maybe maybe even comes out to us as as their youth leader? Um, how how do we engage with that in the journey? And I I really I'd I'd love. There's almost three perspectives, Andrew. I think it's kind of important to gauge. One is like that non-Christian young person in our youth group who comes out to us who has no reason to do anything other really than to kind of follow their heart and you know you you do you and love is love all that stuff you said um then we've got the christian young person who comes out to us but wants to embrace a kind of progressive theology and um you know fulfill their kind of sexual romantic desires anyway and and you know follow jesus and then i guess the third person is that person in in your shoes andrew who i you know is is same-sex attracted wrestles with scripture real realizes well actually this is not something that i can legitimately fulfill as a follower of jesus how do i do that so there's kind of three different ways approaches mm. we have to take pastorally with young people maybe we could take them one at a time and uh, maybe yeah. we could start well, maybe let's start with that some general foundations first please do some, yes please do yeah because I think it's a few things which, yeah, are helpful maybe because they'll go across the board. Yes. My actual first, how do we best help young people? My first thing actually is to focus on Jesus, not on sexuality. Very good. What, what, what all three of those young people most need is a saving faith and a living relationship with mm. Jesus. A, because that is far more important than our sexuality. Yeah. And the risk always is that Christians get hung up on issues of sexuality and that people, especially young people, just hear us as thinking all God cares about is who I do or don't sleep with. And right, actually, no, very no, good. What, yeah. and actually, what God cares about is that he loves you so much he's sent his son to die for you. What God yeah. cares about is he longs for you to be in a life-giving relationship with him where you'll experience your best life. So just keeping Jesus there and just not letting sexuality become too too big a thing, as important as it is, I think, is, is kind of a... Um, a really important thing and then we have another foundation is just what do we almost need we most need to be loved and welcomed and accepted and so whichever those three groups the young person is in help them know that you you as a youth leader are and your church and your youth group is a safe place for them to be a place where they will be welcome a place particularly where it's safe for them to wrestle with things to ask questions they don't feel they've got to put an act have all the answers or yeah. ticking all the right boxes yeah but actually that's a safe place because they're wrestling with those questions, whichever the three groups they're in, 
we don't want them to feel that pushes them away from us. They had to wrestle with them elsewhere. We want them to wrestle with them with us in a safe place where we can be seeking to uh, lead and guide and, and help them in that. So probably, as I say, but there'll be two off the top of my head foundations for all three groups. It's really good. Yeah, it's really good. Okay. So what about the specifics of the young person who's kind of in, in, in your shoes as you were as a, as a, as a young guy where you are same-sex attracted, but you wrestle with the scripture and realize this is not something that's tenable for me as a follower of Jesus. How, how do you help that young person? And what, what most helped you? Yeah. Well, yeah, that's a good question. I think having context, uh, it's linked to what I said, I guess, having context yeah. in which they can openly, safely talk about it. What, what didn't help me, and again, it's probably because the world was different 15 years ago when I came out, was not really having many, if any, people to talk to, not really think it was a safe thing to talk about. And so right. feeling very yeah. isolated and, you know, and you know, statistics, less so among young people now, but still statistically speaking, you're a pretty big or pretty small minority if you're same-sex attracted or identifying as gay. And so just can feel very isolating to then be that minority within a Christian context, you're then a tiny minority and can feel very, very isolated. It's just being a safe context for someone to talk, to be honest and stuff is so important. Yeah. Um, <laughs> is is there like um so if you're like sh- like okay so as a youth leader i'm straight and i'm married right yeah so i always feel like there's this sense of okay yes we are all called to discipleship with our sexuality we are all called to deny ourselves of of various things in our sexuality whether we're gay straight single uh dating or married all of us are called to discipleship but I also feel like this, well, you know what, the, it, like, it's so much easier for me as a married straight guy. Um, and when I have a conversation with a young person about this, I can't always help but feel like, you know, for the best will in the world, I, like, I, I can be compassionate and I can be kind and I can be listen and I, I can listen, but I can't understand really, not really. I can have some empathy, but I, I, I don't know what it's like to be wearing your shoes. So if I come from the approach of like, well, you know, we're all called to discipleship in our sexuality in different ways. And this is maybe what it looks like for me to, to, to deny ourselves. Is that just like, is that aggravating for a young person who, who would be in your shoes? Or, or does that offer some, some solace and solidarity uh, in, in that sense? I think. I don't know, I always think two things. I think my view of this movie has changed over the years. I think I, when I was a teenager, did find that helpful. I mean, it's better than someone not recognising that. <laughs> yes, in a sense. But, but increasingly, and I've been helped with my colleague living out at Shaw by this, he has a thing of, he wants to stop calling us heroes. And I agree. Actually, when we assume that the cost that a guy like me, who, I've got my sexuality, but it's because any Christian who can't, for whatever reason, doesn't get married, who stays celibate and single because of that, when we assume that life and that following Jesus in that area is so much more difficult for us than someone who's married with kids, we assume that what God says is a good gift, which is singleness, and what God says is a perfectly good and fulfilling way of living life, which is not having sex, example, Jesus, is worse than being married with kids. And oh, I, man, that's so and, good. And, and of course, the difficulty is lots of young people will believe that because we're living in a culture which makes us believe that, both a church culture and a secular culture. That's the difficulty. The issue is yeah. not with what God says. The issue is not with how my life is. My life is a good gift to God to me. I truly can thrive and flourish. 
it's maybe a little bit harder for me to do that than you because of our cultural context or for me to believe that's true and to really experience that because of our cultural context. Yes. But it is true. And also, and you all know this, and I'm close enough to enough married people to know marriage is not the wonderful bliss Right, I think yeah. it will be, yeah. and and sex isn't even sex. I hear is often quite disappointing. And just actually, you know, sexual cycle is changing. Sex and marriage is never an easy kind of thing. And actually, it's kind of dispelling. We we believe the myth uh, that marriage, romance, sex are the answer, are the easy life, are the best thing. In the Christian circles, we believe the myth that having kids is success, and therefore we feel so sorry for gay guys like me who can't have it. And I think actually that's the thing that needs to gradually, gently change. Um, uh, Andrew, that that is so good, and I literally did that at the start of the podcast. I, you know, I said so admire you know your courage and your discipleship. I literally, I yeah, I it's nice for our word. egos, but I don't I, think it's quite I, true. I didn't use the word hero, but you know, it, it's kind of in that lane. That has really shifted a perspective in me. That is so helpful, Andrew, uh, and I will write that down after we finish our conversation because. Yeah, just even in, I've never thought of it like that, that even in the, oh man, you know, discipling young person, yes, this is really just, you know, so hard for you. Even in that, um, you are unwittingly elevating uh, romantic relationships over singleness. Yeah, yeah. And really, I've never thought about that, that nuance or that implication um, even if it's an unintended one, that's so good. That's so helpful, um, and uh, I, I feel rebuked, even though you didn't try. <laughs> <to do that>. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, okay, that's so so good. I, I want to come then to the because I'm gonna. I think the 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 middle of those three young people is the trickiest one. So we're gonna leave that to last. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so to that young person then, who's part of our part of our community, part of our youth ministry, but's not a Christian and is same sex attracted. Um, how would you engage with that young person? Because one thing, I guess, if if you subscribe to a biblical orthodoxy, I guess that the one thing that's a bit tricky is you can't celebrate or I kind of endorse that relationship, but also you wouldn't be expecting them to behave like yeah, a yeah, follower of Jesus yeah. if they're not. So how how do you approach yeah. that? Well, my my first little comment would be if that is your situation, it's really good news because it's great that a young person who is sense attracted, who may be in a gay relationship yeah. feels comfortable to be at our youth group because they would have yeah. been, they would have felt comfortable to be around Jesus. And yet yeah. often people don't, gay people don't feel comfortable around churches. So there's something good in that actually. We, that's a situation well, we want to listen, see happen. I've, I felt a rebuke earlier on and now I feel encouraged because we've got oh, quite a lot of young people in that category in our youth good, group. Good. So that's I'm okay. glad to build up and encourage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's, <laughs> so there's just, there's, that isn't there. I mean, my point earlier, Jesus is issue not sexuality. And so as you rightly said, there's we don't really expect people, it's not we don't expect people to live by Jesus' teaching, they're not following Jesus' teaching. And so actually Jesus we want to focus. And and even, you know, I I think it's a perfectly fine strategy if a person, young or not, um, is kind of pressing us on issues of sexuality, but isn't a follower of Jesus. I think a good strategy is to say, well, it really doesn't matter what Jesus says all that much, unless you believe he rose from the dead, unless you choose to follow him. Should we keep looking at that? first and you can't do that forever and we should engage the questions but actually keeping reminding them what you care about is jesus not their sexuality is just kind of quite yeah. helpful i think a practical thing is making sure we are treating people uh equally and fairly so often we with issues of sexuality we find it easy to see where the lines are with same-sex sexuality um and and not elsewhere so actually our lines for 
same-sex attracted people should be the same as opposite-sex attracted, in, by which I mean, you know, if, say, for example, I'm not saying churches should have this, but say, for example, to be in the youth band, you need to be a Christian and seeking to live faithfully um, for following him. If you're saying no to a guy in a gay relationship being in that, you should also be saying no to someone dating a non-Christian or someone sleeping with someone they're not married to. So you know, it's, all, it's easy for gay people to feel picked on. God's obsessed about the church, obsessed about what we're doing, but what about other people who in other areas aren't feeling, following the biblical sexual ethic? So, mm. so actually, if it comes to the point where, for whatever reason, we have to actually, we don't feel we can, you know, bless, encourage, celebrate, or whatever this relationship, that's not because you're gay. That's because actually you're not within God's parameters, which is one man, one woman moving towards a, a marriage for life situation. So mm. it's just making sure gay people don't feel picked on um, by that. And then if you do get to engaging in what the Bible says, what God says, I think two really important things. One is the place to start is not the six, we call copper passages about gay sex. The place to start is Genesis 2, Ephesians 5, Revelation 19. What are sex and marriage about? The sex and marriage are ultimately about Christ and the church, mirroring that, giving us a picture of that, pointing us to that relationship. They're not ultimately about a fulfillment, not ultimately about companionship, any of that kind of stuff. And helping people see some of the beauty of what the Bible says about sex, but basically it's helping people see the why of what the Bible says, not the what. We all know the Bible mm. says, or they might well know the Bible says no to gay sex. Know what it says isn't very helpful if you don't understand why. So focus on the why and not yeah. the what. And then I think help explore with them, you know, do thoughts experiments. If it was true, why do you find that so worrying or painful or offensive? Which is exploring those things you said. Yeah. It's, God, it's yeah. God asked me to deny who I am. But actually, is that really the best way to find who you am? It's God saying, I can never experience love. But actually, would that really be the experience? That would yeah. be ways you can engage with the topic. And one of the, like, I guess, illustrations that I've used, Andrew, and you can tell me if you think this is, is a good one or not, but I've certainly found it helpful um, uh, with um, when talking to young people in this category who are part of our youth group and who are gay and they're maybe in a gay relationship or, or they're not, but don't can't comprehend you know why I would subscribe to a biblical orthodoxy and um, can't comprehend and, and and actually for this I think will kind of segue nicely into that that trickiest of all uh, that young person who is a follower of Jesus um, but who is saying well I can be a follower of Jesus and I can be in a gay relationship um, uh, and yet looking at those biblical texts and actually seeing the strength of the language. Um, uh, and saying, well, how how can God be loving and use those words about um, how they would see it, my sexuality? And and now going back to the gen, uh, uh, going back to the identity and sexuality, uh, identity <laughs> and sexuality being entwined thing, uh, not just about my sexuality, but how can how can God be loving and say those words about me, about who I am? because of the identity thing. Well, uh, yeah, an illustration I've found that's really helped me to kind of have that discussion is a few months ago, um, I was walking with my daughter who is five now, but was four then. And um, she was uh, several meters up uh, ahead of me on the pavement. And she started to walk out into the road and I could see that there was a car coming. So here's what I didn't do. I didn't say, Aria, it would be really great if you would take just a few steps back onto the pavement now. 
Um, I really believe that if you did that, it would be it'd be it'd be safe and it would be good. Um, so if you wouldn't mind, I didn't do that. What did I do? I went, Aria, stop! And I screamed, mm. and she wept because her daddy had screamed at her. Um, but I potentially saved her life. Yeah. So the reason that my words and my tone was so strong wasn't because I don't love her. It's because I do. Mm-hmm. And because I wanted to protect her from harm and wanted to, you know, in this instance, keep her safe. And I think that it translates into these scriptures about sexuality and about um, same-sex practice in particular. It's that actually what the Lord longs for us is life in its fullness yeah. and life in abundance. And because he is a good father and a loving father, he will use language that seems perhaps unpalatable, really difficult to swallow because, because, he, because of the strength of his love for us, mm. because he wants us to follow the way of Jesus. So I found that just to be a helpful way to engage that conversation. I don't know. Do you, do you feel that rings true, Andrew? I think so. I think, yeah, that's really a really helpful illustration, a really helpful point. I think, you know, a lot of the Bible is warning speech. You see it in the Lord, yeah. also the prophets, actually, you know, read some of the words in the prophets, you think, gosh, is God really like this? And you think, yeah, because that's how much he cares. So deeply yeah. he cares. And, and then you know, the time the prophets where it said it, it's shown explicitly the reason for the strength of the messages is them designed to evoke a reaction, yeah. not just not just be the last word in a sense. So I think so, yeah. And I think it's to add on that, but I think actually the second step is to help young people see that strong language such that is used for all manner of different things. Again, God is not picking on gay people or God is not obsessed with our sex lives. Right, right. But actually he, he is obsessed with us flourishing by living his ways. Yeah. Um, and so actually, I, I, and the next step of that conversation with me, I'll probably also show some other places where equally strong language is used. That's very good, and yeah. And show that's, yeah, just, it just broad, we always want to get broad in this thing because there's this myth that people, maybe especially young people, believe that God is obsessed with our sex lives and it's bad news for our sex lives. It's actually the broader, the broader thing is helpful. That's very good. Yeah. Uh, any, any other things specific to that young person who uh, wants to be a Christian and uh, be uh, kind of in the same sex relationship at, mm. at the same time, any other advice for how we approach that? Yeah. Some things I'm maybe I think one is just, it is important to allow people to have the space to ask questions. One of the things we're seeing a lot of these, what people call it deconstruction narratives is yeah. how actually a kind of a, a fundamentalist position that basically doesn't allow people, especially young people, to ever explore stuff themselves, question themselves, yeah, end yeah. badly. And actually, I, I, and it's a very uncomfortable position to be in, but sometimes I have to encourage youth leaders and parents. I, I, I think we just have to allow young people the space to wrestle and explore and trust the spirit of God to do his work. We, we basically, we're entrusting our young people to God. We're, we're saying we can't control this. We can't ensure the outcome. We can seek to help and support as much as we can, but we have ultimately to entrust them in this journey they're on to God. I think lots of these things, it's so helpful to do stuff by laying foundations separate from sexuality. So foundation yeah. identity stuff um, would be one of that. I think a really key thing we need to reclaim in the church will stop probably, especially young people maybe, is just helping Christians, although it's still in the Christian faith, realise Christianity means, as you said, denying yourself and means being different from the world. And so I think Romans yeah. 12 
two is one of the most helpful verses yeah, to us yeah, at this moment about yeah. not being conformed to the ways of the, the world, of being world, transformed yeah. by the renewed mind. That verse is helpful because most young people, in my experience in youth groups, don't don't have a concept of oh, there's a world that isn't all good that I'm being conformed to. Of course, you know, this is what immediately teaches me, school teaches me, what my friends say, of course that's true, of course this is who I am. Actually, mm. one of the difficulties often mm. is they just are so surprised or, or, or um, horrified to hear that actually God might have something to say about how they live their lives and that actually they might be asked to look different and to live differently for people around them. Mm. And so I think laying the foundation of basically the expectation, if you are following Jesus, you've got to look different to people around you, you're going to think and act differently around different things, and that's sometimes going to feel uncomfortable. It's going to make you look really odd. It's helpful because it's not so shocking when it comes to our sexuality and to other things when that's actually the case. Mm. Uh, and the difficult conversations are, the most difficult conversation is when a young person thinks their sexuality is their identity and has no reason to question that because they think, of course, the world is right. Mm. And so actually that foundation is really important. <clears throat> and then a similar point I made in the previous group, actually exploring what the Bible says, it's better to look at the the why and the bigger picture of the good news story than it is at the the what and the individual kind of text. And I think I would say just go on that journey together. So that might be literally sitting together and reading the Bible and discussing it. It might be both going away and reading a book and discussing it or reading or discussing it kind of as you go through it. You're allowing the young person to go into journey themselves, which is important to ask questions, but you're kind of alongside and supporting helping in that. And you want the Bible central. We want the spirit mm. of God to do the work of God through mm. the word of God. And so it's not that, you know, I, I've got to be the clever youth leader mm. who's going to convince you of what the Bible says. It's I've yeah. got to bring you to the word of God so that the spirit of God can do his work through the word of God. Now, Andrew, just as we finish, if I could um, step onto some extremely thin ice here <laughs> for a minute. Um as you, as you talk there and we begin to talk about how we're discipling and pastoring young people uh, with their sexuality, um, kind of it's incumbent upon us really to, to um, talk a little bit about conversion therapy uh, and just the kind of hot water that uh, Christians and Christian youth workers in particular could very, very, very easily find themselves in if we don't engage with this with a great deal of wisdom and nuance. So um, if you wouldn't mind, Andrew, and again, I haven't prepared you for this, but if you wouldn't mind just giving us a little synopsis of what conversion therapy is at, like in its worst and kind of most destructive forms, mm. but also how it's becoming the case that biblical discipleship could also be categorized um, with those yeah. words and then that starts to become a problem. So maybe you could just help us to navigate that thin ice without falling into the lake. <laughs> well, we'll yeah. see. So yeah, so conversion therapy, as you said, it's most extreme, it's worst, is is the view that people who are same-sex attracted need to experience change in their sexual orientation, such as attracted to people the opposite sex, not the same sex, that that can be guaranteed. And it's very worst form is that happens through kind of pseudo medical uh, therapies, exploring uh, might be uh, experiences of abuse, might be experiences of parent uh, difficulties in parental relationships and stuff, and that it can be guaranteed that if you engage with a uh, process of that, often it's being conducted by actually non kind of clinical professionals, not 
uh, training counselors and such like that will bring a change in sexual orientation and that's done a lot of damage partly because in some cases people have been told they've got issues with uh trauma from abuse or issues with their parents when they haven't and so it's been kind of this stuff being put on people it's also caused issues because change usually doesn't come and that then causes great harm to people um yeah going back a few decades there's many stories kind of people believing or just wanting there to be change marrying finding they hadn't changed one that's very difficult just a lot of hurt and harm you've done and ultimately people being disappointed with jesus the real risk actually people being told jesus will do this for you and then he doesn't and that raises yeah. some rather serious questions that's the the kind of dangerous harmful and the kind of end that i living out would not support we don't think change orientation is what the bible says is necessary or should be expected we all live yeah. with, with yeah. brokenness we all live with sinful yeah. desires in this life that's such an right. important thing to say isn't it that like yeah. You know, we keep coming back to the call to discipleship to deny ourselves, take our cross and follow him. But actually, um, you don't have to do that if you've got nothing to deny yourself of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so the 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 important thing here isn't isn't a like a change in sexual orientation. That's not we're at not what 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 we're after in terms yeah. of um, discipleship with our sexuality, is it? It's not, no. you know, and there may be instances in which the Lord does that. And if that's what he chooses to do, he's God, he can choose to mm. do that. But very often, as you've alluded to, as, as is in your own personal case, he doesn't do that. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean that you or anyone else like you is in sin. Mm. It's really important that we distinguish this, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, be- because you have chosen to submit your sexuality, to the Lordship of Jesus and follow him. Um, uh, as a gay man and you can still do that with absolute integrity because you have your obedience to the call to discipleship um uh, so i think it's just important that we make that distinction isn't it we have we've, we've alluded to it yeah. but maybe we haven't said it explicitly we're not trying to change people's sexual orientation that's not that's not our objective we just want people to follow the way of jesus because we believe it's what is ultimately what's best for them and what will lead them into life in all, in all its fullness yeah, that's a very helpful yeah, yeah, thing to highlight. You're right. Yeah, but carry on. Um, yeah. So that's, yeah, as you've been looking at extreme, um, <clears throat> yeah, harmful, problematic end. What's happening now, though, in our, so the UK at the moment, this is a conversation about ban, or the government have committed to banning conversion therapy. And yeah. So the question becomes, how do you define conversion therapy? If it's the yeah. stuff down there, then yes, there might not be a bad idea, albeit that I don't think there's much evidence that's happening very much anymore. Like, that was the church's response 20 years ago, I've never been offered that sort of conversion therapy. I've never been told I should expect that sort of change. I'm not convinced it's much of a big problem in the church today. And a lot of the stories that come out are historic, not present. But many people campaigning for this ban want to hugely expand the definition of sexuality. They want it not to be only these kind of pseudical medical practices promising change. They want it to include anything that might change um, sexual orientation or gender identity. And the really problematic word is they want it to include anything that might seek to suppress sexual orientation or gender identity. Right, okay. Now, I, as a Christian, seek day by day to, in a sense, suppress my sexual desires and to steward them in faithfulness to Jesus. And so it's very problematic if it becomes illegal to encourage people to do that, to help people to do that. One of the reasons, of course, it's problematic is you, as a married man, have to do the same. You right. as a married man are called only to engage in yeah. romantic relationship with your wife. And so you also suppress your That's sexual right. desires yeah. in faithfulness, stewardship. We all do. And actually, yeah. even non-Christians know that all of us might experience sexual desires 
we need to suppress. They might be because we deem them to be totally wrong and inappropriate. It might be because actually we're married somewhere we want to be committed to them. It might be because the desires we're having of someone else who is married and so is out of bounds to us. All of us agree that suppressing your sexual desire is a good idea. All of yeah. us should agree that sex addicts should be able to receive help to suppress sexual desire. Yeah. So it's hugely, hugely problematic, this definition, but it is what people are pushing for. And it could come to the point, if the law is passed in that form, where it would be illegal to teach what the Bible says, it would be illegal to pass to someone. The problem there, though, is I am discriminated against in a way you want. So if I go to a church pastor in that situation and say I'm same-sex attracted, maybe I'm same-sex attracted and I'm uh, struggling with uh, watching gay porn uh, and masturbating, I don't want to stop that in faithfulness to Jesus, would you pray for me, would you help me, would you support me in that? It would be illegal for them to help me to do that. If you, as a straight guy, went to your pastor and said the same thing, but you're a straight guy, it would be perfectly legal for them to do that. What this proposed law actually does is discriminates against LGBT people. That's the really sad thing about it. It's well, yet, yet more discrimination against people like me who wouldn't be able to receive the kind of prayer and pastoral support that should be available to everyone in any kind of free society as we um, claim to be and want to be. So it's hugely problematic. In reality, if the law gets passed in that form, it contravenes human rights and living out as some other organisations have employed many senior lawyers who've done a lot of work and have given documents to the government showing this thing would contravene human rights. Yeah. And so even if it happens, it should get overturned in the courts further down the line. But there's the possibility of a few years of difficulty on the way. So the prayer needs to yeah. be that actually a good targeted ban is passed through law, which does protect people, that does end harmful and coercive and abusive practices, but that actually... Gay people like me are still able to receive prayer, pastoring, counselling if there are issues with trauma parents, not aimed at dealing with uh, sexuality, but aimed at just dealing with the negative impacts that can come from that. So how does the, a youth worker now engage in these conversations without landing themselves in that conversion therapy hot water? Yeah, I think... A simple thing, although nothing's ever quite this simple, is just keeping clear of anything about change. I mean, remembering that thing of actually we're we're not talking about change of sexual orientation, change of desires. We're yeah. talking about stewarding our desires in line with the teaching of Jesus because we want to be faithful to him. We're talking about, you know, in a sense, it's not just what we do, it's what we do, but not just what we do with our body. We can go too simplistic and say it's only, only when it gets put into action that the issue. That's, of course, not true, because Jesus rightly tells us that actually to, to choose to look and to lust is also sin. Yeah. So it's not, it's not just what I do with my body, it's also what I do with my mind. Mm -hmm. But actually, that's different from my instinctive reaction to an attractive guy. So, mm -hmm. so, yeah, just keeping the focus well away from change orientation, not promising change orientation, not suggesting things which just usually aren't true, such as well, this is probably because of a bad relationship with your mum or your dad, or actually have you experienced sexual abuse or something. I guess as should always be in the case in all youth leading or pastoring, being to the appropriate extent, being led by the person we're helping. Our job as youth leaders, as pastors, is not to coerce, squash, force people in a direction. It's to walk alongside them. It's to encourage and um, kind of call them into, say, the life-giving ways we'll call us to, and then to help them and support them if they want to do that. It's not for us to force them or to call them to do that. We, we should be directive in our teaching. One of the odd things that 
the campaigners for the ban are saying that I've written against is that actually there should be a ban on or a Christian should never give directive teaching about sexuality. Um, you know, so for me to teach that the Bible says that same-sex attractive people who follow Jesus shouldn't be engaging in gay sex would be directive teaching. They think that should be illegal. Right. It's actually pretty hard for a Christian, any Christian to maintain that position. I mean, some of these campaigners are Christians because all Christians are called to follow Jesus and his teaching. And Jesus' teaching was pretty clearly directive. And so it's very problematic to do that. So we can give directive teaching but not in a way which is seeking to force people to follow that. We lay out what Jesus says. We explain why you think it's true, why you think it's good news. We explain how we can thrive and flourish in that. And we help those who want to live that out. But obviously we don't force anyone to do that, which we shouldn't mm. be doing across the board, let alone in this particular topic. Yeah, Andrew, it's, it's so, so helpful. And um, this has been such an insightful conversation, but, you know, I mean, just acknowledging we could really go on all day and we've only kind of scratched the surface of what is a uh, a really important conversation. So just as we wrap up, let me ask you, um, what are your recommendations for those who want to explore more, learn more, any recommended reading courses, anything like that that you could point us toward? My top recommendation would be our Living Out website, partly because it will point you to different kind of things. So livingout.org, we have podcasts, articles, videos, animations, book reviews, blogs, put out lots of stuff each week. Uh, so, you know, hopefully pretty much any question you have about sexuality, we've got something there. If we haven't, tell us because we want to become a library full of useful stuff and sexuality. Um, and hopefully it's kind of you know, accessible kind of stuff in there. We're trying to increase our number of resources for youth and for youth leaders as well. So look out for those. Then a few books, a really great American author called Preston Sprinkle, who just yeah. handles these topics fantastically. He's got a substantial paperback called People to be Loved, which I think is the best one-volume treatment of this topic, both what the Bible says and kind of the practical side. He's also written a, kind of an abridged version of that for teenagers called Living in a Grey World, which is quite American, which it would be because he's writing for America, but I think it's very helpful. And it's a book to give to teenagers, maybe to okay, that's work a great through together. Point. Yeah. I think, yeah, Living in a Grey World is really good. And then two books from my colleague, Ed Shaw. One is The Plausibility Problem, which yep. wrestles that thing of how can it be plausible to live this out? The Bible mm. might say this, but actually how can it be plausible, which is often for many of us the bigger issue. Mm. And he goes through many missteps the church has made. Mm. And the final one, a book of his that came out earlier this year called Purposeful Sexuality, which does that thing I was talking about of what is the, the why of sexuality, why the Bible right, says what it says, right. the bigger picture, the beauty. And it's a great book showing how what the Bible says about sex and marriage is good news, even for guys like he and I, who are same-sex attracted, who are celibate and single. That's Purposeful Sexuality came out earlier this year. Fantastic. Andrew, so, so helpful. Thanks uh, for your time on the podcast today. And actually, we're going to be back next month, uh, really, with a part two of this conversation where we're going to talk a little bit about gender and gender identity. So uh, everybody, make sure uh, that you're back with us next month on the Limitless Leadership Podcast. And hey, if this conversation has been helpful to you and you think it would be something that would help another leader, then please do share it with them, uh, share it on your socials. Of course, you can subscribe to the podcast. You can rate and uh, review it on on your podcast provider which just help helps it to get into the podcast feeds of other youth leaders as well and of course don't forget limitless leaders on the 18th to the 20th of january three days of uh, practical equipping 
like-minded community and spirit-filled ministry for youth and children's ministry leaders. And we are going to be uh, talking a little bit about gender and gender identity at Limitless Leaders as well. So that's limitlesselim.co.uk forward slash leaders for that one thank you so so much for joining us on uh, the limitless leadership podcast today but thank you even more so uh, for everything that you're doing to serve young people in these days we know that it requires wisdom and nuance especially as you engage with them in topics of sex and relationships and sexuality which has always been part of youth work but it's just a much more complicated uh, part of youth work in these days so thank you you're, you're doing a wonderful thing know that the smile of god is over your life today as you serve young people on his behalf bless you guys and i look forward to talking to you next time on the limitless leadership podcast <laughs>